Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. <laughs> and as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome back to part two of Stage's conversation with entertainment legend Nolene Brown. Comedienne, actor, ambassador, panellist, presenter, satirist and a stamp, Nolene Brown has done it all. Her contribution to the theatre and television in Australia is vast. Whether on stage or screen, her deft hand with the science of comedy has delighted audiences and rewarded with mirth, ranging from the broadest smiles to convulsive laughter. In part one of our conversation, she described a joyous childhood and the path that led her to national recognition. In this companion episode, she recalls the personalities and colleagues that she has encountered along the way, and more of that stellar stage and television work that has made her one of our favourite funny ladies. Tell me about Norman McVicker. Norman McVicker used to work for Qantas in some capacity, but he had a love of the theatre. So he started the theatre, uh, I don't know what he called it, probably a community theatre or something like that, which eventually became the Pocket Playhouse. So Norman would be the director. He never appeared in any shows there that I am aware of. But uh, he he used to do children's shows every Saturday, perhaps Sunday, I've forgotten. I think there were a couple couple on a Saturday. So he said, if you get children into the theatre, they're your audience. So uh, we loved working with the the children. he said, you must, the kids mustn't be scared of you. So you're in costume and kids can often get scared of clowns or people in makeup. So we would meet the kids in the foyer and we'd give them a drink of water or soft drink or whatever. And then we'd leave them and go uh, get onto the stage. And the kids were so familiar with the characters from meeting them in the foyer that they weren't scared at all and in fact some of them would actually come up onto the stage and that was absolutely charming so we'd be doing a couple of shows for kids in the afternoon and then a show for adults at night and we'd have a few nights a week so it was a wonderful way to learn mm. theatre and serve was, an apprenticeship it was a great apprenticeship and he was a wonderful teacher and he wasn't a bad director either and he once told me that I'd never be an actor or just something like that because maybe I was slack learning my lines or something. I thought, I'll show you. So the next time I went up there, I nearly killed him with my acting. 
I'll show him. I'll show him, that's right. But it was a wonderful thing to do. And it was, I'd finished work at the library on a Saturday morning, uh, put my makeup on in the taxi, getting to the theatre, because I didn't drive in those days. And then the whole day, nine o'clock in the morning till 12 o'clock uh, at night, was taken up with literature and showbiz. Sounds good to me. It was. It was fabulous. Yeah. You got to see Vivian Lee on stage. Oh, my dear. There was a party at Robert Hughes' house. Robert Hughes, the, uh, art, art, the art critic. Thank you. And uh, we were an item oh. when we were young. So uh, the Old Vic Theatre Company was in town and it wasn't with Laurence Olivia. The marriage was over by then and she was shacked up with somebody else who was also in the show. So somebody from Australia was in the cast as well and it said, could we organise a party for the cast? A garden party would be nice. So Bob said, yes, my mother's away, we'll do it in our garden. So at that party, Vivian came along with a very large hat and little capri pants and kitten heels and uh, I thought she looked very old (laughs) (laughs) but of course she was only about 40 I suppose at that time anyway I think she took a shine to Bob Hughes and went off to have a look at his etchings (laughs) (laughs) anyway uh, he got free tickets to see her show and I was very keen to go there So um, I did see her show. But at the party, she said, oh, and somebody said, Nolly's an actress, she said, oh, and what are you doing? I said, well, as a matter of fact, we're doing The Sleeping Prince. And she said, "Uh, well, I'd love to see that. And, of course, Norman McVicker was nearby because my cast had been invited to the party as well. So he said, oh, we'll arrange that. And he did. So in this middle of this blue-collar suburb, a big black car arrived on a Sunday night, a special performance for Vivian Lee and John Merivale. That's his name, yep. sure. And uh, at this big black Daimler, I suppose it was, arrived, and all the people are coming out of their houses looking at it, and uh, chauffeur-driven, and out popped um, Miss Lee, and she was wearing little black dress, Dior, I'm sure, and a little fur cape and a a tiny, tiny hat with a veil and diamonds and pearls. And I was on stage in a dress made by my mum. So she swept in with John Merveille at her elbow and they sat down and that, well, everything went wrong with the show, of course, we were so nervous. And various people stuck pins in when they were trying to uh, give them awards for various things, stuck pins in each other. And, oh, look, we got through the show and that's all I can say happened. And we all met on stage for a, a photograph at the end uh, with Vivian Lee and the painting she'd been given by uh, Norman McVicker. It was uh, Tom Gleehorn and some flowers. We're all on stage and uh, all you can see of me is a pair of shoes standing behind Vivian Lee, like a terrible little shadow, which is much how I felt on the night. And she signed all of our um, 
programs, but she didn't give me any uh, notes of encouragement, unfortunately. No, I'll see you in Hollywood. None of that. Oh, no, you not like Peter Finch. You must come and join us. (laughs) (laughs) Did you meet Peter Finch? I I was never allowed to meet Peter Finch because when I was in London, Finchie was there, I think, and they knew that I'd fall for him. So (laughs) I never met him. And I'm probably glad because I loved his stage image and having read about it and Finch, bloody Finch, I thought, oh, I don't really want to know that. You know, sometimes people can be a disappointment. So the Phillips Street Review, is that your first um, entry into professional work? It was, 1962. Next year, that'll be 60 years ago. Wow. Isn't that ridiculous? I think that's, my maths is okay. Yeah, Yeah, 62. (laughs) Anyway, uh, yes, that was my first. So how, how did that audition arise for you? You obviously had been spied by someone, had you? Ah, that's what it was. I was doing my sister Eileen at the Pocket Playhouse and somebody came, somebody from the theatre came to see it and I, I don't believe it was one of the directors. I think it was, oh gosh, I think it was the costume designer whose name I've forgotten, uh, but he's a lovely man. And he said, oh, you should see this girl. You should get her along for an audition. So I went along and I had an accident, another accident, in a car uh, driven by a friend of mine, whom I later married. And uh, that didn't last long. Anyway, uh, a car came from the side street and pranged into our car. We both finished up in hospital. And, uh, but Derek had thrown himself manfully in front of me to take the, uh, the impact. So all I had was a, a very, very small injury. But it was to my foot, because my feet went down onto the, um, the, the bottom of the car. The feet went down and I thought, oh, I can't walk. So I was uh, helped out. Uh, I, I was given crutches again and I thought, well, I can't go back on stage. The understudy, we had understudies, and the understudy will have to go on. So then I went to see the understudy, and I thought, people think she's me. So I went on with a broken foot because, uh, I, you know, I, I didn't want the understudy going, oh, don't let the understudy wear the best <laughs> wig. Anyway, uh, I did play it uh, hanging onto the furniture. Nobody knew, but... Because of that, I had a little stick. Bob Hughes gave me this very, very nice little black ebony stick with a gold top on it. And uh, the uh, musical director for the Phillips Street Theatre uh, had walked on sticks. So she identified with me and she played very nicely for me in my audition because, again, having to sing in, at, at the audition, I was very uncomfortable about it. Do you remember what you sang? I think it was a song written by a friend of mine about love. (laughs) I think it was about love. But a comic song. No, it wasn't. No, no, no. no. Um, It was about love. (laughs) Legitimate. (laughs) Yeah, so I, I, I just had to get the song over and done with. But it was set very low. And uh, it probably suited my voice okay. So I got through it, I think, a bit like that. 
Was there a comic script that you had to perform for the, the audition? I'm just trying to remember if I had to prepare my own comic s- sketch. I probably did. Uh, it would have been a thing that I'd uh, I'd seen or read before, but I can't remember what it was. But it must have been okay because I got in, and uh, the other people in the show would have been just as uh, anxious as I was. But I think it was the stick that got me into the show. What's new? Right. It was called. Right. And, and that's where you met Barry. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So he came. We went to. A little drinks party where the the cast of newcomers, they were all newcomers, all young, uh, would meet for the first time. And I thought, oh, isn't he gorgeous? <laughs> and he was very skinny in those days and uh, wearing a dapper skinny suit, Beatles kind of suit with a stovepipe pants and the pointy toes. And he looked very cute. So... Uh, Did I, you think that you would become such great personal mates and professional colleagues for so long at that point what well, nobody does i guess nobody but, but was there a spark of... there was very much a spark now yeah. whether it was from him as well i don't know right. but there certainly was from me i had a bit of a crush on him i have right. to say but i had a crush on a lot of people <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of people reciprocated <laughs> But there must have been a shared sense of humour also. Oh, there was, yeah. yes, for sure. Yeah. And we'd finish work, go back to his apartment. He had an apartment. I lived at home. And uh, we would play records. And um, that's when we both got really keen on sort of ad-lib stuff. And we'd try it out at his place. But we'd also play ridiculous records. And one of the ridiculous records was of Florence Foster Jenkins. And at we would, Carnegie Hall, it's a famous yeah, album. And yeah. we would fall over each other laughing at this hilarious thing. Little did I know that years later I would get to play her. And when I was asked to do that, I said, yes, I don't have to read the script, I'm just really keen to do it. That's a beautiful serendipity, isn't it? Yes. That, that all yes. these later. That's and right. Barry played your husband? Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. He came all the way from America to play uh, uh, St. John, whatever his whole name is, I forget. St. John, something or other. I imagine it would be a challenge to sing so badly as much as it would be to sing properly. I learned to sing. I learned to, I went to a, a wonderful teacher of opera who fortunately lived in the Southern Highlands and she uh, also teaches on the physiology of everything. So she knew what I wanted to do and where I wanted to place my voice and everything. But I needed to be a soprano. So I, I learned, I was there for three or four months couple of times a week learning how to sing well and then how to sing badly without killing my voice because it you know it it is a weird uh, weird sound she makes mm-hmm. but of course when I was rehearsing I'd rehearse with her voice and I thought well I can't actually sing like that or people would be leaving in droves I'll have to make it funny as well so I did, but also truthful, and this is the point, she had to be really, really truthful. So I knew she really believed in herself, and the, the time she was around, 
would have been the time when um, the Marx Brothers made all those great movies and the wonderful, wonderful Margaret Dumont. Margaret Dumont. I thought, that's who I'm going to place myself. I'm going to be physically like Margaret Dumont and above everybody, but with a sense of humour as well. So I did that and uh, uh, one of the reviewers said I was a cross between Dame Edna and Margaret Dumont and I thought that's exactly Brilliant. what I wanted. Brilliant. Yeah. It was uh, Bob Ellis who said that actually. He would know. He <laughs> yeah, would know. he would. Uh, Peter Quilter, I think, wrote. Peter Quilter words. wrote that. Now, did he write duets for you he and did. Barry? Or he did didn't write it for no. us in mind, no. No. but he'd written it as uh, there were, I think, five little stories, uh, five uh, short plays with different characters. So Barry and I decided it would work better if one of those plays was cut. And well, I think it was... Nice, um, yes, um, uh, the quartet I think so. Yeah, yeah. And it, it did work very well. Mm. And we had an opportunity to play silly buggers, which we both love. I knew I shouldn't have worn my glasses. I think I look better with contact lenses, but I did say in the description that I wore spectacles and I didn't want to be inaccurate. Oh, no, 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 I think it's important. I think it's important the description should be precise. Yes. Yours says 47 years old. <laughs> uh, well, well, that's a misprint of course. That's not what I wrote in the form. <laughs> Bloody, bloody annoying. It should say 57. <laughs> you really do look after me. Maybe I shouldn't marry you. Maybe I should accept. <laughs> Marrying a gay man is far from the craziest thing a woman can do in this chaotic world. Yeah, but not exactly the most romantic. And you think straight men are romantic. I know women who go out and buy themselves a Valentine's card and then take it home and ask their husbands if they wouldn't mind signing it. <laughs> I even know one woman who puts a stamp on it, puts it in the post. Plus, every wife needs to remind her husband of the date of their wedding anniversary. And if she gets really lucky with the constant reminders and the gentle hints, it might result in a box of candy from the gas station, which the husband will then commence to eat. Well, sure. Yeah. Oh, Angela, oh. look at you, all of you. Is that designed for just the one person? <laughs> no. I also have the bridesmaids under here. <laughs> what do you think? Oh, you look lovely. Thank you. I wish I could return the compliment. This is my favorite suit. It's your only suit. You wore it to Janie's christening, Daddy's funeral, Uncle John's memorial, and I do believe it made an appearance at the opening night of Oklahoma. Actually, it was cats. Nobody <laughs> wears a suit to see cats. It was wash day. Well, you could have splashed out on something new. After all, it is my wedding. How is that what it is? I wondered what all the fuss was about, but at least I came. What do you mean? Well, I thought I might skip this one and wait for the next. <laughs> <laughs> this is only my third marriage. It's not something I'm making a habit of. <laughs> what wonderful opportunities for, for actors to, to play four characters in one evening yeah. to make yourselves look as different as you can physically. We were totally different. Yeah. Barry went overboard with his differences. He had teeth in He had teeth, I dear. <laughs> it shocked me greatly the first time I saw him. <laughs> but, but funny. Very funny, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. We were totally unrecognisable for most of the show. <laughs> you were great mates with 
Harry Kippax too. Yes, yes, now, Harry. Through these chats, you know, six degrees of separation, we learn a bit more about people no longer with us. Yeah. He was one of our great theatre reviewers. He certainly was. If you got a good review from Harry, it was really, really important. Uh, he, he was a funny old fella. Uh, he was a mad, mad, mad about theatre. He was a wonderful fan of theatre. I think he actually dabbled when he was a young person, but I don't. I think he had a face for radio, and uh, he gave up his uh, uh, aspirations. But he was uh, a person who used to go to, uh, like a lot of um, journalists and artists, to Vadim's Russian restaurant in uh, Potts Point. It was the place to go, was it? It was the place to go, fantastic. In fact, books are written, somebody says, are you a Vadim's person at the time? Uh, and it was our, I suppose, our um, thingy circle. The, 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 the bright young thing. Yeah, it was yeah. a bright young yeah. thing's place. Uh, it was also uh, illegally grogged because uh, in license those days uh, the license laws finished 10 o'clock or something so everybody go there after 10 so all the alcohol was served in coffee cups and as soon as the cops arrived you could always tell because they wore the hats and the suits all the cups would go under the white starched coffee uh, tabletops uh, so Harry was always there and he used to write his reviews at one of the top tables it was on two levels and uh, for some reason, I, I had a, a couple of dates with Vadim, and I think Vadim introduced me to Harry Kippax, and I was always allowed to sit at Harry's table. And people down on the bottom level would go, oh, look at her, she's up with Harry. So uh, I got to know him quite well, and various other luminaries who would uh, frequent Vadim's. And it was, as you say, the place to go. It was fantastic. And often, Bob and I used to go there, Bob Hughes, uh, often we would close the place up. Um, the host, Vadim, would often be off at some illegal sporting venue and doing a bit of gambling. And he'd just say, well, there are the keys. And I don't think we ever took anything that we didn't, you know, we just, we paid for everything is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. But often we would leave there at dawn. Sounds good to me. Oh, it was a great place. There's never been another like it. And a terrific place for networking also. Yeah. Who knows who you'd meet. Of course it was. Mm -hmm. And the food wasn't bad either. Yeah. It's glorious stroganoff and borscht and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yum. I read that uh, a lot of your early career, you were cast as the strong, sexy, streetwise. Yes, I was. But you fought against that as typecasting. You didn't want to be typecast and I sought different roles. Television was where I was starting to get really typecast. And uh, I'd been in television for years and years and years, working constantly. And uh, then I got a job on number 96, placing, playing a character called Trixie O'Toole or something equally dreadful. And I was uh, Ron Shan's love interest. And I thought, that's, that's it for me. I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm leaving television forever. So I took off in high dungeon and went back to the theatre.
You went to London for a while, didn't you? I went to London in those days you had to, to make, you know, to let everyone know that you're a proper actor and you'd been to London, yeah. even though you didn't do much work over there. I spent about a year there, I got so homesick. Um, I did some television from there, uh, and so everyone thought I was doing, you know, great work. <laughs> Little did they know I was starving. Um, I came home for a little while because the, uh, I w had an invitation to go back into uh, the Mavis Bramston show as myself rather than playing Mavis Bramston. So I said, oh, yes, that's what I want to do. So that brought me home from England and I never went back. I never felt part of it and I'd follow a, an Australian voice on the tube and just to listen to it. No, I really missed Australia and the way we live. We're so comfortable with uh, entertaining people. In Australia, it's always come to my place and we mean it. Mm -hmm. But over there, I don't remember going to too many people's houses. I went to a few, but it wasn't as, you know, you'd meet at the pub, but not in the house. And that's a thing, that's a very English thing. I don't know whether they don't want crumbs on the carpet or something, but I just never felt at home. Professionally, you, you land. Do you need to find representation in order to get access to auditions? And I was really lazy when I went to England. Uh, I might have gone there for a man. Right. I might have... There's a theme here. <laughs> there, there is, there is, there is. <laughs> yes, I don't think what show I was with or in, I think, what man was that? <laughs> so I might have, I might have. Anyway, uh, so I, I had all these people saying, oh, you're going to England, I'll give you intro introductions to so on, so on, so on. And I didn't take them. I said, oh, no, I'm just going to go over there and everything will be fine. But it wasn't fine at all. I did, as I say, get some work with the BBC. But uh, that was sort of reporting. So those shows came back to Australia. So everyone was very pleased for me. But all I wanted to do was get home. Barry had time in London too, he didn't did, he? W yeah. Were you there at the same time? No, no, no he went time. after. Of course, because you returned to Mavis Bramston, which he was a big part of. Yes. You appeared in the very first episode as Mavis Bramston, didn't you? I was the very first Mavis Bramston, yeah. yep. I only know when he danced with me. I could have danced. Danced. Danced, danced, And again, uh, I never thought that would happen. Uh, it was a show, uh, a satirical show, where they were going to poke fun at the powers that be and captains of industry. And I thought, well, that's not going to go well. That's, you know, a plane that will never go off the ground. Anyway, Barry was in the show and I was very happy for him, even though he dumped me because we were going to be in a show he'd written for the two of us again, which was How the West Was Lost at the Music Hall. So I had to do it with another actor and fine that was, but not the same as working with Barry. Anyway, 
a party was held at the headwriter's house in Potts Point and I was invited as Barry's date and they were discussing what was going to happen in the show. Uh, it was going to be a, a satirical show, a send-up of imported stars coming here and being really shithouse and having to be sent back to the country of origin and then the Australians would get on with the show, which was a bit of a joke because the, both, two of the three performers were English and Barry had always pretended to be. So anyway, they said, and the, the character would be called Mavis Bramston, this terrible performer from London. Do you know where that name came well, from? Well, I said, where did the name come yeah. from? And uh, Michael Plant, the writer, said, I was on a plane coming from Melbourne once and a hostess was rude to me and her name was Mavis Bramston. Now, whether that's true or not, everybody says, oh, no, there's always been a character called Mavis Bramston. Uh, you know, and I said, well, that's my memory, a clear memory. Whether he was pulling my leg or not, I don't know. I thought it's a great name for a character. Anyway, they said... We need, we can't very well have an English person coming out playing this character, the joke wouldn't work. It'll have to be an Australian. And then all eyes were on me. And I said, what? <laughs> can't sing, can't dance, can't tell a joke, you want me to play that? They said, look, we'll disguise you. You've only just started in the business, no one will know. And they did, they disguised me very well. Big black wig and little black dress. And, even seemed to change my teeth and anyway uh, nobody knew that she was not actually Mavis Ramston except for John Howard not the actor and not the ex-prime minister John Howard the journalist who used to write for TV Week or TV Times and he said oh I know who Nolan Brown that Nolan Brown's Mavis Ramston so he exposed me so um, it didn't hurt being exposed, by the way. But I didn't want to be Mavis Bramston. Uh, she was supposed to go back after that first episode. But of course, they then realised they could have Mavis Bramston doing the commercials because it was on commercial television. So Maggie got stuck with being Mavis Bramston hanging onto a, an ampole because uh, it was ample boron, I think, in those days. And she became the face of the show as far as ads went. Well, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to go to London, and probably because there might have been a man. <laughs> <laughs> so I went off to London. That, but I, again, it was a good excuse not to be in the show, but of course... The management said, you can't, you can't leave the show. You're Mavis Bramston. You've got a contract. I said, no, I haven't. So the only person they hadn't contracted for the Mavis Bramston show was Mavis Bramston. Right. And then Maggie Dents. Well, nobody knew the difference, even though Maggie's five foot ten and I'm five foot five. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the illusion of television. Yes. We're jumping all over the place here, which is fabulous. But I want to go back to the Neutral Bay musical. Oh, that was such fun. So that followed the Philip Street reviews. And you continue... It was almost... Uh, it was a couple of... It seems a couple of weeks later. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't think we'd been... Barry was in the review 
I think he was in the music hall before he went into the review. Whatever, he had a connection with the music hall. He had done a show there and then he was booked to do another show and a character was... There was room for me to be in the show anyway. He suggested I do it and I had a terrible case of bronchitis at the time. So I had to do an audition uh, and my voice was so low I got the job because she had to be like the female version of Barry Creighton. She was, uh, he was like a riverboat uh, baddie and I was like a riverboat girly <laughs> baddie. So uh, that was the start of my um, relationship with the musical and I'm lucky because on the, I was so scared about doing the show and it was a strange auditorium, huge, vast, old, the old kind of cinemas, you know, that we used to have that would hold 1,500 people wow. or so and, and tables everywhere. So it was a very, very odd sort of feeling going out on the stage. Uh, so I, I had rehearsed quite well with the pianist and it was okay. Uh, but then when I walked out, I heard people yell at you and throw rolls at you and stuff. I thought, oh my God, this is really scary. And I walked out and my voice seemed to drop a couple of octaves and I just stopped halfway through the song and did stuff with the audience, did stand-up, you see. And the fourth wall is being broken, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes. So I could do whatever I wanted. And I've got a cigar. And the pianist, she was wonderful. She just, you know, let me do what I wanted to do and followed what I was doing. She supported me so well. Because it was like, it's either, you know, kill or be killed. So I decided to be a killer. And that's... It's a great way to hone your skills to yeah, work in front of a live audience. It, it was but... a big, big uh, night. Now, it's the thing about panic and um, anxiety. And I am an, an anxious person. Uh, and I know that you can harness that anxiety. And that's I've been able to do that a couple of times. And it's taught me a lot about myself and sometimes when you're you're getting that anxious for a reason and I can see a thread during our, during our conversation here today of harnessing that anxiety that's how I got the job to be in applause because my anxiety made me a power uh, in that audition yeah. and I, I did a show called at Marion Street Theatre it was um, a series of plays one of them I had to be an American uh, and was very New York and just before this particular performance the director came and said uh, oh we've got some Americans coming in to see the show well, I went, <gasps> you know they oh, my accent's not going to be right and anyway I was really panicking and I was standing beside I was in the last play of the four plays, standing behind the door thinking, well, I, there's nowhere to go. I've just got to go through that door. And I went through the door and I know that I nailed it. And the director came and said, you were brilliant tonight. And I thought, well, that's that thing that you can 
hopefully... You need that adrenaline, don't you? Do I, yeah, but sometimes there's an adrenaline overdose, you yeah, know, yeah. overload. Mm-hmm. And I was really overloaded. And I thought, well, I have to do it. <laughs> and you do. Yeah, and you do. So your career's on the rise. What's yeah. it like when your anonymity starts to disappear and you are recognised in the street? And I hated that when I was a young person. I really did. And... Uh, I used to wear a wig occasionally and then people would say, Hello, Nolan, love your wig. <laughs> <laughs> but, but people could be so cruel too. I mean, uh, Stuart Wagstaff said, a woman came up to him and shoved a biro into his chest and said, Here, sign that. And she said uh, something like, uh, Oh, what happened to you? And people could be you know, rude, yeah. absolutely rude yeah. or open. <laughs> and I remember going to a supermarket and <laughs> two uh, supermarket shelf stackers were there and one said, can't stand that woman. And I know it was me. So it's as if you're deaf, you know, you're yeah. just on the television. But it's, people have got used to seeing people. I guess now, although if you're really famous, it's still awful, terrible, what they, especially with the press. And when Barry and I were quite young, um, but had become known as a double act and probably intimately related, who knew? Everyone, everyone wanted us to be. And I do remember a helicopter going over an apartment building that we shared different levels of the apartment building. We had uh, walkie-talkies where we talk long before mobile phones. we say, you know, I'll, I'll meet you at the swimming pool or whatever. Anyway, a helicopter with a journalist in it trying to take photos of us. Oh. So, uh, you know, we've had a bit of that. And I loved going to places in those days. They Shows weren't all syndicated. So I went to Tasmania one year and no one knew who the hell I was. And I thought, oh, isn't they fabulous? Yeah, but now I don't mind it at all. I think people are really generous, especially in the Highlands. They've got a few people who are famous. And uh, sometimes a person will just casually walk by and say, thank you for all the fun you've given us and stuff like that. And you think, isn't that a wonderful thing to, you know, offer somebody? That's like a, a beautiful vase of flowers or bouquet of flowers. Yeah. You're appreciated yes. and people want to express that. Oh, it's lovely, absolutely yeah. lovely. Yeah. I don't notice now people looking, but when I was the ambassador for ageing, I used to travel with a friend of mine, a girl from the Department of Health, and she'd say, oh, these people are looking at you. And I said, oh, I don't know. Why are they looking at me? So it, it's always surprised me. But in the early days of television, I found it really hard mm-hmm. to uh, deal with. And Graham Kennedy, of course, would wear a disguise when he walked down the street. It just looked like Graham Kennedy wearing a disguise. <laughs> you were part of a, a wonderful um, age of Australian television also, where they would uh, film, or the ABC I'm thinking of, uh, plays would be recorded and broadcast. Yes. The recruiting officer, for example. Well, that was a wonderful thing to be involved in, in so early in my career. I'd only just started in show business and I suppose it was 22, 23, something like that. And uh, it was a a cast of very well-known Australian actors. Uh, And it was was rehearsed 
in three, I think, three different studios at the ABC. So it almost, it was almost like uh, filming in real time, although they obviously didn't do it that way. In black and white, it's a pity it wasn't recorded in colour because the costumes were brilliant, absolutely glorious. And it was a lovely thing. Of course, I really only wanted to be a classical actor. Yeah. I wanted to be in Shakespeare and I wanted to do the classics. And uh, I'm, I wasn't too bad in the show, I have to say. I've got a tape only recently. Somebody said, I've got this tape for you. And I played it and it's, there I am, it's 23-year-old. In this beautiful way, yeah, and it's just gorgeous. Wow. Yeah. Wow, how special. I wish they'd still do it, but... Um, yes, I do too. Different, different times. So costly too, I suppose. Did you have, ever have an opportunity to play Shakespeare or no, a great classic no, role? No, nobody's no. ever given it, and I know John Bell and everything. Yeah. No, no, I've never been given an opportunity. It's probably too late now. Is there a role that you'd like to play? Uh, I, I like the uh, probably the comedies. I don't really see myself as uh, one of the drama dramatists. No, I think any of the comedies I'd like to play. Mm. But uh, it, it'll, it'll only have to be in my little bedroom at home. Where magic happens. Magic happens. Yeah. <laughs> Are you superstitious in the theatre? I used to be. I used to have to do a little ritual stuff. Uh, not anymore. Uh, and my, uh, I used to bring everything into the theatre and have a lovely little um, arrangement of stuff. I don't know, I've got a little towel, a little bit of makeup, and uh, maybe a hairdryer. It doesn't take me. Oh, I'm, I'm always there long before, though. Yeah. Hours before. And if there were days before, I'd be there days before. Now, I like to really settle myself and. Do I don't chat to everybody in you know going to people's dressing rooms right. and having a chat. I like to just ground myself and prepare for the day. But I really, I can't just go from being a normal person onto the stage like a lot of actors can. Like, but I don't. I I don't have to get into the character so much. I just have to compose myself. Do you have a, a favourite part of a theatre that you like to? live in or exist in, whether it be the wings like or have, a dressing room? or uh, Often in the wings. And I was in a play at the um, the Ensemble and it was uh, a play that involved about eight women. And uh, the, they only had two dressing rooms and the dressing room was like being... was like being in an aviary with a chainsaw the noise was so bad that I spent all my time in the wings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I also like to be near the wings so I don't miss an entrance because I've been on stage when somebody has missed an entrance and didn't appear for a very long time. And I was working with a, an actress who was extremely nervous to hold her hands before she was on stage as she was just on stage. They were like ice. And she said, I, I learned the script, I have to learn the script, I can never deviate from the script anyway. This actor just refused to show up. And so we just had to make it up. So I'm saying stuff that might have had some relationship to the play and she had to join in. And eventually we hear, boom, 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 as the other actor comes on stage. <laughs> <laughs> Do you read reviews? 
And take I any, do. I read reviews. Do you take yeah. notice of them? You, the terrible thing is you only remember the bad ones. Mm. Uh, I've had some fabulous reviews. The best review I've ever, ever had in my life, I lost. And I've not been able to find a copy of it. it that was from uh, Brisbane when we did Mother and Son. It was such a wonderful, rave review. I mean, for the play as well, but yeah, yeah. personally, it was such a good review that I think God said, well, you're going to get vain if you have that, so I'll chuck that away. So, uh, no, I, I do read the re reviews. When I was in the Pocket Playhouse um, in Prince and the Showgirl, Sleeping Prince, uh, the reviews came out, and they came out that night or later that night, and we used to go to the cross and collect them. And uh, the cast was sort of hanging around saying, oh, don't tell her, don't tell her, don't let her read the review, she'll hate it. And I went, oh, I don't want to read the review. And I read the review and it was uh, very good for the whole play, but it said, on the strength of this performance alone, I prophesy was the word, uh, a long and successful career in the theatre for Nolly and Brown. <gasps> that's not a bad review. That's a good review. Mm. Mm -hmm. So that's why I probably read them. And if they're no good, I'd just say, oh, well, that what person can't write. <laughs> 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 I have to say, I ha don't think I've had many bad reviews. Can I ask about Blankety Blanks again? You can. Um, how was that cast assembled? I mean, a Blankety lot of, Blanks. Were, were you all friends of Graham beforehand? No, or, no, no, not at all. Um, an invitation came through my agent to audition for all we knew was that it was going to be a television quiz show or something like that. But that's all we were told. And the auditions took place over a couple of days in um, a motel, oddly enough, at Artarman. Uh, well, it had catering, so they had to get me there. So uh, we re rehearsed with, um, must have been somebody pretending to be the host, and just, just to see how we went on camera, I suppose. Uh, and there were a number of us. And then on the second day, they brought in Graham Kennedy. Well, I nearly fainted. Graham Kennedy, Graham Kennedy, because <laughs> he was the king of television, you know, wonderful. And Graham then worked with us. He must have seen some footage of various people on the show and thought, I'll try that person, that person, that person. They weren't friends of his at all uh, because most of his friends were Melbourne yep. and this show was going to be in Sydney. So out of that um, very first couple of days, Graham was only working with us for the second day, I think, it became obvious that he and I had a bit of a spark. But then as the show became a, a proper television show, the spark continued. And of course, we then became really good friends. And that helps when you know the humour, you can see someone's going to get a joke out of that something. That twinkle in the eye. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, but also, you know, he he rehearsed himself so much in those characters and you'd know how to pick up on what he was going to say next. 
I've got the DVD set, which I <laughs> I put on occasionally, mm. and it still holds up very well. Oh, he's so good. Oh, it's mm. brilliant. And I know they tried to revamp it about 10 ne- years never ago. Never worked. And it didn't work. No. I mean, it was a special place in time yeah. with the personality, Ferrier, yeah. Dave Gray, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Carol Ray, yeah. Barry Creighton. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful uh, talents. Well, it's mainly the host. Yeah. You know, if you haven't... Got, the people they had doing it... Uh, I actually worked on one uh, remake, the first remake with Daryl Summers, which was quite a different show. He did the right thing. He made it different, although he did have a go at playing all characters like uh, Graham used to do. But uh, it, it was quite good fun to be in. I didn't mind that at all. But then they did it with Shane Bourne. Yes. And it wasn't Shane's show. Right. And then they tried it with somebody else. I forget. But it, it just, it would never work. Because it's like when they said, we're going to make a film about Graham Kennedy. And Tony and I both said, who are you going to get to play it? Now, obviously, he... The guy who played it was good, but it wasn't Graham. You know, the, it's really hard to replace somebody if you. And they made him into a you know a sour old, miserable git, which he certainly was not. And I got a bit offended by that, to tell you the truth. The story about Graham Kennedy is Graham Kennedy and work. There was nothing else. Show business and. He had no real story. I mean, his background as a young person uh, living uh, poorly was real. But later on, you know, he didn't have any significant partners, you know, no tragedies, not at all. He just lived for work. Mm. The Naked Vicar Show, that grew out of radio? We did Naked Vicar on radio, that's yeah. right. Um, that started in the, in the 70s. And uh, I got a phone call. I was working at um, some other theatre. I was working in the theatre doing um, a Fado farce. And I got a call. We were going to do an extra show uh, for New Year's Eve doing the Fado farce. And the call came from an old bloke saying uh, something like, uh, you wouldn't want to be in a comedy show, would you? And I thought, well, when? And he said, oh, it's on New Year's Day. I said, well, no, I'll be hung over by then. I don't think I will. (laughs) Anyway, I decided to go and meet the old bloke. And the old bloke turned out to be a very young bloke and not a bad-looking one at that. So I thought, I'll do the show. Uh, And the show was... Uh, just delivered to us in our hands, read the script a couple of times and then on air, on radio. And we did it with an audience of a couple of hundred people, I suppose. And uh, I thought, this is fabulous. I love this show. I love the writing. I might marry the writer, one of the writers, although I've been married to both of them, according to Wendy Harmer, who exchanged my husband for his partner in her book called It's a Joke, Joyce. So she marries me to Gary Riley instead of Tony Sattler. Oh, right. She even got some facts wrong. There she wasn't got a, a fact check. Even yeah. though she spoke with Tony for weeks over the, the book that she was writing and my part in it. So he was a bit offended. And Gary said, I've been, to marry, I've been married to a few women, but never to Dolly Brown. Brown. <laughs> 
So, Naked Vicar, that was the first time you met Tony? It was, right. yes. The first recording day I met Tony, yeah. Right. That was performed live on television, was it? Or were you Oh, they never really... But it was a live audience. Audience, yeah. yeah. And the thing I loved about The Naked Vicar on Channel 7 was because Gary and Tony had... They owned the show, even though they did it through Seven. So... They organised all the filming and stuff, and they were so quick. The filming was done instant and brilliantly because of their back. They both had a background in commercials, uh, so that was helpful. But then, when we'd get into the studio and we were performing in front of a live audience, we didn't wait around for anything but simple costume changes. We didn't bother about makeup. Men played women. Women played men. I looked quite good with a moustache, yeah. by the way. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, I loved the fact that people came in to see a show, and there was no waiting around forever. Which you know, as you know, if you've ever seen television shows mm. being recorded, mm. how the audience can go quite cold. Did you record once a week? We recorded once a week and we recorded twice on the one day. We'd do one show and then have a meal and then do another. So you could pick out various bits and replace them with the second show if you needed to. Because the material is quite topical. Always, So yeah. uh, that would be quite uh, a, a challenge uh, to uh, continue to learn those scripts. Well, it was right. harder for the people to write them because well, right. there are only have two, of you. only two people writing right. in the early days, and it's so hard. It just killed them actually. Um, but we would get a, a, the topical stuff we could read uh, because we'd start the show a bit like the Bramston show used to start with pe- people sitting on stools, even though these guy, the writers, had never seen the Mavis Bramston show. It seemed to be uh, a a good way to start. We could read the topical stuff at the top of the show. The rest of the the rest of the sketches were rehearsed, and uh, some little bits were filmed. But you know, hey, we were young; it wasn't hard to learn. Mm-hmm. And the, the brain's a muscle, isn't it? Yeah. Um, if you're using it all the time, yeah. that you're, you're well, Some some people are better at learning than others. <laughs> How, how do you... Well, oh, you're about to, to do yeah. mono next year. How, how are you learning your lines? How do you do that? Well, just read it over and over and over right. because I'm working monologues there. Mono means short for monologues. Yeah. And three actors uh, learning three different characters. So just read it and read and read it. It yeah. gets in eventually. Mm-hmm. Mm. You're not wrong, Narelle. <laughs> Catchphrases like that. Yes, the do they begin? On. Do they begin to aggravate after a while? No, not anymore. No. no, no, hilarious. And I've met so many people say, "You ruined my life." My name's Narelle. <laughs> <laughs> At least not Karen. Karen's really been ruined. Yeah, or Joyce. It's a joke, Joyce. It's a joke. I still use that. Mm. Not happy, Jan. Yes, that's caught on too. Yes. Mm. God help the the Jans and the uh, yeah. the Joyces and the Norells, but not Nolene. Nolene, it has been an absolute treat to to have this conversation oh, with you today. Thank you Peter. so much for your time. Gorgeous. I know you'll cut it well. Oh look, I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> yes, I'll edit all those naughty bits. <laughs> um, it will be my pleasure. But but thank you so much, and um, all the best, Chookers, for this wonderful tour of uh, Mono, which is going to go around Australia. Thank you. In twenty twenty two. I'm looking forward to it.
I've got another leg to break. Uh, but let's let's hope that's just um, figuratively, not, not <laughs> so, yes, please. Yeah. Great news that we will have the opportunity to see Nolene in comic flight around the country during 2022. Mono is billed as a three-person, one-man show, with Nolene performing alongside Max Gillies and John Wood. Further information can be found at www.monoshow.com.au. My guest for this double episode, comedy icon and living legend, the brilliant and charming Nolene Brown. Thanks, Nolene, for joining us. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time. When next time will be our Christmas episode and the final episode in Series 4, 2021, before the podcast takes an extended break. It's been an eventful year and we'll reflect on what was. I'll be joined by Kate Fitzpatrick in her annual uh, stint on stages and Geraldine Turner, who'll reflect on her association with Stephen Sondheim through the years. The episode will drop on Christmas Eve, so look out for it. Don't miss uh, miss that one. Our last one for the year. I very much look forward to your company then. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time. Bye.